to the Richard Nixon experience. But it's not just that uh, the, the accusation, if I can characterize it correctly, is not just that, uh, that Kissinger was somehow involved in letting the Vietnamese know that or, 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 or information that the Johnson administration was entering into these negotiations, but specifically that the Nixon campaign through this woman, Anna Chennault, was suggesting to the South Vietnamese that they should not agree to some sort of a peace deal because, the, because a better deal could be obtained after Richard Nixon was elected. You know, did the South Vietnamese really need Richard Nixon to have been in, informed by anybody that there was a, an October surprise coming that they would then need to sabotage? And uh, anybody who's been properly trained as a historian knows that, that uh, on that test, this case collapses because it was absolutely clear to anybody who read the papers uh, that there was an October surprise in the pipeline, uh, and that, secondly, a Nixon uh, administration would be tougher than the Humphrey administration. Th- that was because they'd both made their positions absolutely clear, and therefore the South Vietnamese, who had pretty good intelligence sources of their own, they didn't need any of this to know uh, that, that this was in the pipeline and that they should hang tough. Before Johnson even made his famous broadcast announcing the bombing halt of the, and the peace talks, Uh, the South Vietnamese government had said they weren't going to play along. So I have to say, um, in the annals of historical scholarship and the foreign policy of the 1960s, this is one of the biggest red herrings I've come across. On November 2nd, with just three days to go until Americans went to the polls, President Thieu suddenly announced that the South Vietnamese government would not attend the proposed talks after all. A representative of the Nixon campaign at the candidate's personal direction had secretly contacted the Saigon government, urging Thieu to stay away from the talks, promising that once Nixon was elected, he would drive a harder bargain with Hanoi than Humphrey would. Thanks to a CIA bug planted in Thieu's Saigon office and an FBI wiretap on the South Vietnamese embassy in Washington, Johnson got wind of what had happened and called his friend Everett Dirksen, the Republican Senate minority leader, to warn him that the Nixon people were committing treason. I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign. That's right. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. I know. And I think it would shock America if a principal candidate was playing with a, a source like this on a matter this important. Yeah. I know this, that they're contacting a foreign power in the middle of a war. That's a mistake. And it's a damn bad mistake. Uh, Mr. President? Yes. This is Dick Nixon. Yes, Dick. I uh, just went on to the press and said that uh, I had given you my personal assurance that uh, I would do everything possible to cooperate both before the election and if elected after the election. I just wanted you to know that uh, I feel very, very strongly about this and uh, any uh, rumblings around about uh, somebody uh, trying to uh, sabotage the Saigon government's attitude, there certainly have no 
absolutely no credibility as far as I'm concerned. I'm very happy to hear that, Dick, because that is taking place. My God, I would never do anything to 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 encourage Saigon not to come to the table because basically that was what you got. Well, that's good, Dick. We've got to get this goddamn war up the quicker the better, and uh, the hell with the political credit. Believe me. Thank you, Dick. Nixon was lying, and Johnson knew it. But to go public with the information, the president would have to reveal the methods by which he had learned of the Republican candidate's duplicity. He was unwilling to do so. Nixon's secret was safe. The American public was never told that the regime for which 35,000 Americans had died had been willing to boycott peace talks to help elect Richard Nixon, or that he had been willing to delay an end to the bloodshed in order to get elected. At 10.45 this morning, Eastern Standard Time. On election day, Richard Milhouse Nixon won the presidency with 43.4% of the vote. Hubert Humphrey received 42.7%. The Nixon campaign's secret maneuvering may have helped him win the election, but the president-elect's fear that that maneuvering might someday be exposed would be part of his undoing. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace. And this show, as you just heard, is going to center on one of the most uh, heinous accusations that has been made in any period of American history. But it's the typical kind of thing where you sling mud against Richard Nixon and see if it sticks, and it usually does, because he seems to have that uh, kind of enemy base out there. But this is really one that should transcend anything that Richard Nixon has ever been accused of, because it's an incredibly weak case. And I think it really needs to be examined. So we're going to do that over several episodes here. And unlike a lot of the historians that you hear about, and you just listen to one, Ken Burns, a reputable uh, uh, historian, that was his section from his uh, PBS documentary uh, on Vietnam, uh, which he accuses Nixon and, and his people of interfering in the, in the peace talks. And they, they make this claim, first of all, as though the peace talks were well underway and that they were, we were on the verge of peace in Vietnam and the truth is they were still going to argue about the shape of the table until the middle of January. Uh, so that's one problem with this story and it is offensive to me uh, the caliber of the historians who have allowed this to go um, unquestioned because um, you know whether you like President Nixon or not this is treason is a very serious charge. And you need to have it down to be able to make it. And, I, you know, there's a really interesting article called Don't Blame Nixon for the Scuttled Peace Overture that was in Real Clear Politics. And he says in this article, a guy named Jack Tory, um, this makes an epic story worthy of Benedict Arnold and Aaron Burr, the villainous Nixon willing to sacrifice anything to win the presidency. Nixon's critics have called it treason. The problem is that the argument is nonsense. And we're going to show you why. We're going to cover this today 
First, I'm going to let you listen to historians talk about uh, this story. We opened this with Neil Ferguson, who does not believe it. We opened it then later, we, after we came in, with Ken Burns. And you're going to listen to uh, these historians talk about what they think of this story. And that's going to be today's episode. Then we're going to look at an MSNBC special report that was put together by Rachel Maddow. And I'm going to take some segments from there and show you uh, where there's some issues with this. And then we're going to look at Lyndon Johnson's mental state. Because it's very important because a lot of this hinges on the fact that not only was he illegally wiretapping an American citizen, but he's the one who keeps screaming treason. He's the one who keeps talking about it. And you have to learn some things, and we're going to talk about that, about Lyndon Johnson and his mental state, especially really throughout the five years that he was president, but in this closing period of time in 1968. Then finally, we're going to listen to this in our documentary format as it unfolds. And unlike other shows that you may listen to, they're going to let you listen to snippets of these tapes, I'm going to let you listen to the entire phone conversation. There is a a call between President Johnson Vice President Hubert Humphrey, Governor of Alabama George Wallace, President, Vice President, former Vice President Richard Nixon. Um, and you're going to hear this at the beginning. We're going to go through the notes that were found by J.A. Farrell in his book Nixon Life, which, by the way, I like more than I don't like as far as a, as a book goes of what I've read of it. Um, we're going to go through that and we're going to examine each part of these notes. And then I'm going to let you listen to the entire call with Everett Dirksen. The entire call between President uh, Johnson and Vice President Nixon. The entire call between uh, Dirksen and Nixon, Dirksen and Johnson after the election. The entire call between uh, Vice President, uh, President-elect Nixon and President Johnson after the election. His conversations right prior to the election with Dean Rusk, his conversations with Clark Clifford and Dean Rusk, and a couple of people that were all on a, on a joint call together. And you're going to see how this unfolds. And I think it's important that you that you listen to it because treason's a pretty serious accusation. And even you know if you believe all the Watergate and all this about Richard Nixon, this one's pretty serious. And it is fully flawed, and I'm going to show you that throughout. We're going to also have a conversation at the very end that I think is what I like to call the unsmoking gun, and you're going to hear this as we get past the 68 election, in which um, you're going to look at this and say, hey, even Lyndon Johnson knew that this was probably not true. But we're going to first take a look at what historians have said, some very reputable historians. We're going to hear from Luke Nichter, you're going to hear from... Uh, Neil Ferguson, you're going to hear from Michael Beschloss, you're going to hear from uh, a gentleman named Kevin Hughes who wrote a book called um, titled uh, Chasing Shadows. So I'm going to let the historians talk and then when we come, we're going to go to a break we'll come back, we're going to listen to Pat Buchanan Henry Kissinger people who were there and then back to Neil Ferguson who is a historian who wrote a, a landmark book on uh, Henry Kissinger, and he is going to discuss his book and uh, his view on this in length. So let's take a look first at Anna Chenault herself. She actually answered some of this, or 
you can try to figure out if she answered. Um, in an interview that she did about her life and uh, her husband, who was a, a very a, a flying tiger ace um, and a, a general in in China during World War II, he was a hero there. Um, Claire Chenault, uh, and he passed away, and then she kind of rose up in the ranks and became a fundraiser, and that's actually what her role was with President Nixon, or uh, then Vice President Nixon's campaign. She was a fundraiser uh, with a women's group that Manny Eisenhower and her co-chairing. Uh, she did not work for the campaign. That's a misnomer that's been out there, and she was not, uh, you know, the chair of the campaign, which has also been out there. But we have a little snippet here where she's asked point blank about her role. And, you know, Rachel Maddow has described her in her, her MSNBC show as this international woman of, of intrigue, the iron butterfly. And I want you to assess where you think she is the iron butterfly based on what you're going to hear here in just a moment. And you had a couple of roles in the Nixon administration. Yes. What did you do for the Nixon administration? Well, <clears throat> I uh, was introduced to many of the Republican candidate and a Democrat candidate. And uh, so the Nixon administration sort of ran after me and gave me the story of what they were doing, and hopefully that I will be able to present their sto story to the public, which was really, really interesting. And that's how I learned about U.S. politics, and it was very interesting to me. <laughs> now, you did have one political controversy. Um, what role did you play in communicating with the South Vietnamese government during the 1968 campaign? There's some controversy about that. Yes. <clears throat> because of my reporting for the Central News Agency, which is a national Chinese news agency, and uh, subsequently I got to to beat many of the candidates, and uh, of course, including Nixon. And uh, their campaign, oh, was hot, hot, hot. And uh, so we have to report of their activities and uh, what's going on. And who's supporting who. Uh, the Nixon administrations got hold of me and asked me to organize the Asian citizens of the campaign. And I, from, from there, I got to know many of the candidates and also to know many of the politicians, shall I say, uh, involved in the campaign. 
as you know, in the 60s, 60, 66, 67, 68, and move on. It was very important part of the U.S. history of campaigning. And uh, Nixon was campaigning for for his candidate. And I was able to interview him and also got to know many of the Republican and the Democrat candidates running for office at that time. I mean, looking back, you can you can fully understand why it was so interesting because I think that part of history in the in the United States the campaign was really very aggressively uh, active, and I was able to interview many of the candidates and also doing some publicity for them. Now, about a decade earlier, 1958, you were still a very young woman when General Chenault passed away. Now that you've heard from Mrs. Chenault, we're going to listen to Rachel Maddow introduce this uh, situation. She's going to explain to you the theory behind the Chenault affair on MSNBC. So you're going to get to hear what is her theory and sort of this common thread that you probably have seen on television uh, or read about, about the Nixon's involvement in the Chenault affair. This is uh, from MSNBC, and this is one of uh, Rachel uh, Maddow's first introductions of this. In our next episode, we're going to go in depth and look at her uh, documentary, but this is just an intro that she had done, and it does lay out to you what the accusation is. And one of the pivotal things in this accusation is that, um, which I'm not sure is in this clip, but is that Henry Kissinger was spying on the Johnson administration in uh, Paris, uh, and he passed along information so that the Nixon campaign knew where the peace talks uh, were and what was going on. One problem, he was in Paris, and he didn't have any ties to the Johnson administration. It's one of the glaring errors, and you're going to hear about this later. But here is Rachel Maddow. But then, less than a week before the election, it all went horribly wrong for Richard Nixon. Because less than a week before the election, it was five nights before Election Day, on Halloween night, 1968, the Democratic president, LBJ, went on TV in a surprise nationally televised address. He made a surprise announcement that peace was at hand. The communist side, the North Vietnamese side, was going to make major concessions at peace talks. The U.S. anticipating that the other side, the South Vietnamese, were going to agree to a deal based on those concessions. Peace was at hand. The terms were all set. Peace was at hand. In recognition of the fact that peace was about to be declared, the United States would step back right away and stop all military operations in Vietnam. LBJ said that on a Thursday night. The election was going to be the following Tuesday. 
Turns out the Democrats do know how to end this war, this war that the country hated. So this was bad news for Richard Nixon for that election, right? Bad news for Richard Nixon, but good news for the country who wanted the war to be over. Good news certainly for the people who were fighting the war. This was good news, right? Almost. Thursday night, LBJ made that announcement that peace was about to be agreed to by all sides in Vietnam. That was Thursday night. By Saturday morning, never mind. Deal was off. Peace was not at hand because the South Vietnamese side had decided actually it didn't want the deal. In fact, they didn't even want to talk about a deal. They pulled out of the peace talks. And so the war was back on. What happened? What happened between Thursday and Saturday? Now we know. Hello. How are you, my friend? Well, I've got one this morning that's pretty rough for you. Uh, we have found that our our friend, uh, the uh, Republican nominee, our California friend, has been playing uh, on the outskirts with our enemies and our friends both. He's been doing it through rather subterranean sources here. And uh, he has been saying uh, to the Allies that you're going to get sold out. You better not give away your liberty just a few hours before I can preserve it for you. Mrs. Chenault is contacting uh, uh, their ambassador. Now, this is not guesswork. Ms. Chenault, she's young and attractive. I mean, she's a pretty good-looking girl. And she's around town. And she is uh, warning them... Uh, uh, to uh, uh, not get pulled in on this Johnson move. President Lyndon Baines Johnson, 1968, Saturday morning, November 1st, explaining to Senator Richard Russell what had gone wrong with this peace deal that everybody thought was going to end the war. I mean, LBJ had been so sure this was going to end the war that he went on TV Thursday night and told the country the war was going to end, peace was at hand. The reason peace did not happen, is what he was explaining on the phone, is that the Republican nominee for president that year, Richard Nixon, had intervened in the peace talks to blow them up. He used an intermediary who was involved in the talks to approach the South Vietnamese side and tell them, don't do it. Approach them and tell them to pull out and not agree to a deal. He told them this deal being worked out by LBJ, this whole deal to end the war, these peace talks in Paris is not going to be a good deal for them. They should not participate. They should just wait until after the election when he, Richard Nixon, would be president and he'd give them a much better deal. Johnson was going to sell them out. He, Richard Nixon, was the one who they should deal with. Nixon's intermediary was actually caught on tape telling the South Vietnamese ambassador, just hang on through the election. Hang on, hang on, don't end the war. We need the war to keep going through the election. It's outrageous, right? I mean, the war could have ended. It was on the verge of ending, except a candidate for office in our country thought that the war ending would help his opponent in the election. He thought he'd have a better chance of getting elected if the war kept going. And so, while saying he wanted the war to end, he did what he could to keep it going when it otherwise would have ended. It is astonishing. And President Johnson thought so, too, at the time. We now know. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. I don't. I think it would shock America if a principal candidate was playing with a, a source like this uh, on a matter this important. Yeah. President Lyndon Johnson there on the same day as that earlier tape, remarking that as far as he can tell, this is treason. I do not think he is saying that hyperbolically. He says it repeatedly on these tapes. 
He thinks that what has happened there, an American politician purposely prolonging the war and stopping the peace for his own purposes, he thinks that is a hanging offense. He thinks that is treason. This was four days before the election that year. Having thought that the war was going to be over, that a peace deal had been negotiated, now the president finds out the peace deal fell through because a candidate who wanted there not to be peace before the election intervened to make one side walk away. Now, why didn't LBJ say anything publicly? I mean, this is right before the election. Can you imagine how the country would have reacted to that? This is a war the whole country was against. It was going to be over, except candidate Dick Nixon intervened to undo the peace deal and keep the war going. Can you imagine how angry the American public would have been? But LBJ did not say anything publicly at the time because he thought that he couldn't. And the reason he thought he couldn't is because of the way he found out what Nixon had done. The FBI illegally wiretapped the phones of the South Vietnamese ambassador. That's how we knew. We couldn't let anybody know that we were illegally listening into the ambassador's phone lines, and so they couldn't let anybody know what it was they heard illegally while they were illegally listening in on the ambassador's phone lines. And so Nixon got away with it. And the October surprise, the Halloween night surprise that the Democrats' war was ending right before the election, that October surprise ended up getting undone. The war did keep going, and anybody who was anti-war in the country really did have no reason at all to vote for a Democrat. The racist right-wing guy peeled off 13% of the Democratic vote on the other side of the Democratic coalition. And so, yes, the Republican, Richard Nixon, won. It worked. Richard Nixon got elected, barely. Squeaked by, but he won, in part on the basis of the idea that he was the guy who knew how to end the war, not those dumb Democrats. And of course, Nixon did not know how to end the war. He sure knew how to keep it going, but he didn't know how to end it. He didn't have a plan. And instead of the war ending on Halloween in 1968, the war went on for five more years while he was president, in which time more than 15,000 Americans were killed, as were untold numbers of Vietnamese. So that happened. That actually happened. And now, in 2013, what are we supposed to do with that information? LBJ is dead. Nixon is dead. Hubert Humphrey is dead. George Wallace is dead. 15,000 Americans are dead who otherwise would not have been because of what happened. All the Vietnamese who died. How does this get made right? It cannot be made right in the most basic sense that the people who died needlessly because of this duplicitous political decision cannot be brought back from the dead. You also can't get revenge. You can't indict Nixon's ghost. But you can't refuse to let him get away with it again. You can't make sure it is part of the way that we at least tell his history and the history of that war and the history of modern American politics. You have to include it in the history, both so nobody gets away with it in the long run the way he did in the short run, but also so we don't do it again. So we at least know something like this is possible. So we at least don't dismiss this kind of possibility as some conspiracy theory bit of nonsense. So we at least know there is precedent, modern precedent, for this particular kind of craven evil. Now I'm going to let you listen to a series of historians. It's going to start off with the Miller Center. They have three. Uh, Luke Nickter, who wrote and is one of the experts on the Nixon tapes, and I believe the most accurate of, of most of these historians when it comes to Richard Nixon. Um, a gentleman named Ken Hughes who wrote Chasing Shadows, which is an elaborate uh, picture of, of what uh, he believes happened and unfolded uh, with the Chenault affair and how it had a role in Watergate later. And there's another historian here, uh, Mr. Prado, who I am not as familiar with, but who does make some interesting points. And that's going to be followed by several historians. And I'll let you, I'll let you listen to 
uh, their views. Talking about before Nixon really was even president, the Chenault affair. The October uh, surprise. The October surprise, where asked Nixon is about to be elected president, but it is fearful that uh, that he is showing a little bit of weakness at a certain point in the summer before the election, uh, and then this secret sequence of events begins, in which, according to Ken, uh, what's happening is the the Nixon campaign is sending the message to the North Vietnamese at that point: don't. Don't settle. Don't don't reach a deal with the current uh, with the current uh, Democratic administration. Uh, hold off. You'll get a better deal from me. Now that sounds a little bit like what's just happened uh, with a group of U.S. senators, arguably uh, in, in the United States. But the uh, but in the case of as Ken portrays it uh, with Nixon, this is a private citizen uh, and and what could arguably be a very clear violation of the Wagner Act, a very clearly treasonous act of a presidential candidate undermining this critical negotiation and as a result of it perhaps succeeding in that undermining and uh, at the cost of thousands of additional American lives because the war was extended considerably longer than it might otherwise have been. But do you guys, do you, do you buy Ken's interpretation of, of that sequence of events? I think there's something there. Um, I mean, clearly, the facts as I understand them is we know the Nixon camp had contact with the South Vietnamese, the embassy, with Anna Chenault. Um, I think, to me, what lacks in terms of the smoking gun is Nixon's direct involvement. Uh, We don't know exactly what Nixon's involvement was, when, was he issuing orders, was he involved in meetings or phone calls. We can assume John Mitchell, his campaign manager, was involved. But to me, what's lacking is knowing exactly what Nixon said and what he wanted to happen. And that's what frustrated LBJ, because he strongly suspected that Nixon was behind it. Uh, Anna Chenault implied that Nixon was behind it. It's the explanation that makes the most sense, because the South Vietnamese clearly took these messages very seriously. But um, while, while LBJ sometimes implied well, he, when he was talking to the Senate Majority Leader Everett Dirksen or even to Nixon himself that he had the goods, he really didn't. He, he had the goods on Chenault, but, but not on Nixon. But there is a particular recording, right? Is it where, uh, uh, in which Johnson is, des- is describing this to Nixon directly, isn't he? And saying, uh, and he's, he's sort of offering up the possibility that, that this must be going on uh, uh, independent of Nixon himself. But, right. but the message is that candidate Nixon needs to, to, uh, to, curb his, um, yes. to curb his operatives because it's treason. I mean, that's what LBJ is essentially saying, that if this is actually happening, it's it, happening as treason. And Nixon does not say oh, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about, Mr. President. To me, another thing, I, I, one of the mysteries of this whole episode is that if, if one political party had evidence of treason against the other, you know, this idea that instead of using that for political gain in an election year, in, during the middle of an October surprise, but no, it's for the better of the country that we seal this for 50 years, I just, I just don't buy that. I mean, I think if, if the tables were reversed and Republicans had evidence of Democratic treason, they would have put it to good use in some form. That's one of the fascinating LBJ conversations, because the day before the 1968 election, LBJ gets his Secretary of State, his National Security Advisor, and his Secretary of Defense on the phone. And he's like, should we reveal this? The Christian Science Monitor has a story. And the Secretary of State, a Democrat, uh, the National Security Advisor, another Democrat, Clark Clifford, the Secretary of Defense, a very big Democrat, going back to the Truman administration, all advise him not to. Because they say, well, we, don't, we don't have the goods on Nixon himself. And if we put it out, we could destroy his presidency before it begins. They're worried that Nixon would enter office as a crippled president. So it is kind of interesting to, to hear 
guys who are Democratic partisans, you know, include LBJ in that, um, saying, well, you know, the, we, we probably should hold off on this because it's, it does too much damage and we don't have enough uh, proof. Can we imagine uh, yeah, such a thing imagine in such current a, times? Yeah, I mean, can yeah. you possibly imagine in, in our current politics one side deciding for the good of the country not to destroy the other side? Wow, <laughs> that is unthinkable. And by the way, Clark Clifford was a big partisan back in those days. Oh, yeah. I have a, a very ironic note to add to that, and that is uh, I was part of a U.S. delegation in Hanoi in 1997 meeting with these uh, former Vietnamese officials in a conference about the, the missed opportunities of the Vietnam War. And uh, when the question of a peace deal came up, the negotiations came up, the North Vietnamese position was that we had made a big mistake because the same deal that we achieved in 1973 was on the table in 1968. Yeah, so it's very fair to say that the war could have ended at that point on, same, on the same terms. And you could, maybe this is being a little artificial, but it, it is not, it is not uh, ginning up a drama to say that the lives lost between that moment and the actual end of the war could very likely have been, those lost lives could have been prevented. Just a clarification, I should say, the North Vietnamese weren't saying that those specific terms were on the table. They were saying that they were open to uh, uh, an agreement of that type. I'm not sure what to believe, and there's evidence that conflicts, and there's still records that that we're waiting to be opened on this. Can we talk about Anna Chenault, which I do know about? Okay, back on safe ground. Uh, I actually talk about, tell the story about that, how many here know who Anna Chenault was? Okay, so I'll take a minute to tell. Please. Anna Chenault was the widow of the General Claire Chenault. She was one of the leaders of the China lobby, meaning the Chiang Kai-shek pro-Taiwan lobby. And in the fall of 1968, she was a cutout with Richard Nixon, who used her to send messages to the South Vietnamese government to not play ball with Lyndon Johnson because they'd get a better deal if Nixon came to power. So, uh, Halloween 1968, we're just about to the 50th anniversary, you're absolutely right. Lyndon Johnson went on TV announcing that he would halt the bombing of North Vietnam if there could be peace talks in Paris. So he announced the bombing halt And because of Anna Chenault's dealings with the South Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese said, we won't come to the peace talks. And the way that affected politics was, the moment that Johnson announced the bombing halt, polls show that voters came flooding to Hubert Humphrey in a very close election, and he was probably likely to win. About two days later, the South Vietnamese saying, we're not coming to Paris, and the voters came flooding back to Richard Nixon because the peace talks had collapsed. And there are these great secret tapes that I quote from in this book where Johnson is talking to one of the great senators in American history from our beloved state of Illinois, Everett Dirksen, everyone remember, who was Johnson's great friend. He was minority leader. And Johnson says, you know, I've got FBI listening in on Anna Chenault and all these people. So he knew exactly what was going on. This is treason, he says, in my poor Johnson impersonation. And I have an even worse Dirksen impersonation, so I won't do that. But Dirksen basically says, I don't disagree. And so it sets up an interesting 
problem because uh, Nixon wins. And, and one another scoop I have in the book is that Johnson actually went to Hubert Humphrey and gave him the goods on what Nixon was doing treasonously against his country, but says, you know, Hubert, this is your election. You decide whether to re reveal it or not. And Humphrey said, well, I think it might be too tough to say something that nasty about Nixon, even if it's true. And Johnson's reaction was, that's exactly why that boy should never be president. It was much too soft. And I think he was probably right in this instance, by the way. Was it a violation of uh, uh, Logan Act, as you know, has never been seriously used, so it probably was. But an act is not an act unless it's really prosecuted. Morally, it was treason from my point of view. And just one little uh, epilogue on this. Uh, Johnson and Nixon had so much on each other that they could hardly breathe. Mm -hmm. And Nixon was terrified that Johnson would reveal his treason, which would have crippled him as president from the beginning. Johnson was terrified that Nixon would reveal that he had illicitly and illegally exploited the FBI to listen in on conversations of the Nixon circle. So it's like they both got knives at each other's belly. And as I write in the book, and a lot of this had not been known before, you bring up the time clock to the beginning of 1973. All right, another trivia question. What impending problem was Richard Nixon dealing with politically at the beginning of 73? Begins with a W. <laughs> Watergate. So Nixon gets the bright idea from his young counsel, whose name was John Dean, who, by the way, grew up in Flossmoor just like me. We've talked about it. He's a little older than I am, so it was not when I was living there. But Dean said, here, they were still friendly at that point, says to Nixon, Mr. President, why don't you blackmail Johnson and say, you know, we're going to reveal your illicit use of the FBI in 68 unless you go to Democratic senators and get them to shut down the Watergate investigation. Mm. And then Johnson died, so that could not be used. But what Nixon would have thought is, I revealed Johnson and the FBI. It's going to reveal my treason. It's going to be much, you know, it's like a firing a gun on the gun and it explodes in your own face. So none of that happened. But you know, the lives of our saints, what can you do? Well, I guess I need to end on something happy. I guess the good news, good news is we survived all this period, right? Well, we survived the, Watergate. The good I mean, news, we did, and the, and the good news is we have noble presidents like Abraham Lincoln, our fellow Illinoian, Illinoian above all. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. 
And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back. And now uh, we're going to begin this segment with some people who were there. Pat Buchanan, Henry Kissinger. And then we're going to come back to Neil Ferguson who wrote, really, he's the authority on Henry Kissinger's career. And he has a take on this that I, that I think we should look at. And So now you're going to have a, a feel for what the historians are saying and what some of the folks who actually were there and part of the Nixon campaign uh, would have felt like about this story. Back to the election of 68, because you joined Nixon in 66. 65, 66, right, yeah. And in 68, uh, this just came out a couple of years ago when the Johnson Library released these tapes. Right. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, the CIA came to Johnson and said, we got these tapes. Uh, we've rec- actually recorded the Nixon campaign. They're putting up a picture of me, the young men around Nixon. Yeah, now. there you go. Okay. We've actually recorded the Nixon campaign in contact with the South Vietnamese, telling them... Through Anna uh, Chenault. Don't, don't, yeah, through Anna Chenault. In fact, here's the clip. This is, this is LBJ talking to uh, Everett Dirks. Right. Are some of our folks, including some of the old China lobby, are going to the Vietnamese embassy and saying, please notify the president that if he'll hold out to November the 2nd, they could get a better deal. Uh-huh. Now, I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign. That's right. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. I know. So was Nixon guilty of treason? Well, he didn't say Nixon himself. Nixon did get in, t- did get in touch with anybody. I don't have all the details on it, but I know a good deal about it. They wiretapped our plane, bugged our plane. Johnson did. And what happened was Anna Chenault reportedly told President Hsu, you can get a better deal when Nixon gets elected than you're getting right now. But this is so silly, Tom. President Hsu wasn't stupid. Hubert Humphrey on October, or September 30th came out for a bombing halt without any conditions in South Vietnam, talked about leaving That's Vietnam. That's because had cut a deal with him. Well, that was before, this is September 30th, September, okay? The Salt Lake City speech. Of 1968. Yeah, do you really think President Chu said, gee, I wonder which of these fellows would be better for me? Nixon no, an anti-communist. Was the, this was gonna be LBJ's October surprise. Just two it weeks after his, that, he was going to announce, we've we declared peace between North and South Vietnam, and he Humphrey would walk in and win the election. No, no, what he was talking about, we got a, we got a big deal, we got a peace conference coming, it was another phony thing he worked up to try to change the electorate and Nixon there's nobody ever pointed or identified Nixon as having a role himself in that okay Tom, Tom Charles Huston just did that's Houston he's Houston. a good friend of mine he's a good friend okay. of mine he was not on the he's, plane he, he said he, there's no question that Nixon sabotaged the 68 Paris Peak talks he said quote over the years as I've studied it I've concluded that there was no doubt that Nixon was would have been directly involved and it's mm-hmm. not something that anybody would have Tom Charles Houston's a very good friend of mine I helped bring him into the Nixon campaign in 66 I don't think he has hard knowledge of that. Secondly, no one has ever charged Richard Nixon for that. I don't doubt that Mrs. Chenault was talking to or the South Vietnamese embassy or what, whatever it was. Right. But I just think that first this was a phony thing LBJ did to influence the election. And I think the president did not talk directly to 
Chu, and I don't think he ordered anyone to talk to him. And I think Chu did it on his own because he was not a stupid man. He knew that Hubert Humphrey would sell him out. Okay. Primrose, North Carolina, good morning. Hi, Pembroke. I'm sorry, go ahead, please. Uh, Dr. Kissinger, I have to tell you that uh, I'm not your greatest fan, but I saw your biography on A&E, and I must say I found myself much more sympathetic to you afterwards. Uh, but uh, some of your past troubles me, and I hope that this morning uh, you might open your heart and speak truthfully to the American people about the events of uh, October 1968. Uh, according to Seymour Hersh's book, The Price of Power, you got wind of LBJ's peace plans for Vietnam in October 68, and warned Nixon and Agnew, and Hirsch writes, quote, it is certain that the Nixon campaign, alerted by Kissinger to the impending success of the peace talks, was able to get a series of messages to the TU government, the South Vietnamese government, making it clear that a Nixon presidency would have different views on the peace negotiations. Now, the Republican emissary to South Vietnam apparently was Anna Chenault, who was working with the Nixon campaign. And Hirsch quotes a uh, cabinet official, uh, Johnson cabinet official, saying U.S. intelligence agencies had caught on that Chenault was the go-between between Nixon and his people and President Chu in Saigon. I'm going to stop you there. We'll have time for a response. Thanks for the call. Uh, what uh, Anna Chenault did, whom I didn't uh, know at the time, uh, I do not know. Uh, Bill Bundy, who was uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Asian Affairs, and who has written an extraordinarily critical book of me, has nevertheless always pointed out that this is an absolutely uh, outrageous charge. I had no knowledge of what the uh, 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 Charles administration was doing. I told the uh, 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 I told the, uh, John Mitchell that in my judgment, it was in the Vietnamese interest to try to. Uh, make an agreement before the election in order to tie down both political parties uh, to such an agreement, and therefore they should keep in mind that such an agreement was very possible. I had no knowledge of the uh, of the details of the negotiation. I obviously therefore couldn't give them any secret information. I think this is a uh, this is a lie and a distortion of a fragmentary record and. Uh, this is not something that, and in fact, Nixon in his own book said that I warned him so often against getting himself into the peace negotiations that he thought I might be an emissary of the other side. Columbia, South Carolina, for Henry Kissinger. Good morning. But you do address, you invoke some of the criticisms of him in, the, in this discussion, and you do address what some people call the Anna Chenault affair. But this story from the 1968 presidential election, uh, that, uh, and, and an allegation that Kissinger was in, involved in some sort of subterfuge related to the peace negotiations uh, on Vietnam that were going on in Paris. But tell us what the Anna Chenault affair was, and when you looked at it in this book, what was the conclusion that you ultimately arrived at? Well, this is a difficult one because most of your viewers will be baffled uh, to hear that there was someone called Anna Chenault. And so would um, Henry Kissinger have been since he had absolutely no contact with a woman who's said by some historians to have been a key source uh, to the Nixon campaign of what the uh, Johnson administration had up its sleeve during uh, the 1968 election. Now, in order to understand what the heck this is all about, you have to just have some background. 1968, an incredibly fraught year 
in American history. We think we're polarized now. It was a lot worse then. There was a lot more violence then. Uh, Anti-war protests were really beginning to spill over in many campuses. Uh, And the election was uh, a hard-fought one and an unusual one because the incumbent president, Lyndon Johnson, uh, decided not to run. Uh, And so long-standing Republican political professional Richard Nixon uh, became the Republican candidate uh, and was running against Vice President uh, Hubert Humphrey. There was also a, a segregationist candidate, George Wallace, in the mix. Uh, now, in all of this, uh, the Vietnam War played an absolutely crucial role, uh, and the Nixon campaign was very uh, anxious that there might be an October surprise, and indeed there was, because Johnson announced at the very last minute just before uh, the vote happened uh, that he was going to... Uh, end the bombing of North Vietnam, and begin talks uh, in Paris uh, with Hanoi. So the key question that has been asked uh, was whether there was any, uh, you used the word subterfuge, any dirty dealings that allowed information about what Johnson was doing to get to the Nixon campaign. Now, I'm not going to talk about Anna Chenault because she has absolutely nothing to do with my biography of, of Henry Kissinger. Kissinger in 1968 was not on the Nixon campaign, number one. He was actually an advisor to Nelson Rockefeller, uh, one of Nixon's arch enemies in the Republican Party. And and Kissinger had been a Rockefeller advisor in three elections out of three, which Rockefeller had failed to get the nomination in. So that's an important starting point for this. You also need to bear in mind that Kissinger's a professor at Harvard. He's not really a major political figure at all by this point, though he's well known as a commentator. And he's also not a particular fan of Richard Nixon over time. Deeply hostile to Nixon. Had avoided Nixon uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, only met him for the first time uh, in December 1967. So the argument that's been made, uh, Seymour Hirsch was the first person to make it, Christopher Hitchens then picked it up and ran with it, was that Kissinger leaked uh, confidential information, classified information, about what Johnson was up to, to the Nixon campaign in order to get a job uh, from Nixon. And I showed that this story is incredibly implausible. In fact, it has absolutely no shred of evidence uh, to support it. What Kissinger was actually doing in 1968, and that's what I can show because I've had access to Kissinger's private papers, was A, advising Rockefeller, not Nixon, uh, B, writing a whole bunch of papers on what the next president should try to do better in national security strategy. He was pretty busy with that. Uh, He didn't have any access to classified information. Uh, Everybody knew that the Paris peace talks were going on because unlike previous talks, they were public. Everybody knew about them. Kissinger had actually been involved with secret negotiations to end the war the year before, but they had gone nowhere. So the key issue here is what did Kissinger say to Nixon and also why did he give him any assistance at all? And the answer is, one, Rockefeller told Kissinger after Rockefeller had failed to get the Republican nomination, we hate Nixon, but it's got to be better than Humphrey, particularly because we're trying to move towards a more constructive policy on Vietnam and we think the Republican platform is better than the Democratic one. Two... Uh, Kissinger then gave some analysis to a member of the Nixon campaign about what he thought uh, was going to happen. Now, if there's a smoking gun, this is it, because there is a document uh, that shows that somebody, it's almost certainly Kissinger, spoke with someone in the Nixon campaign about what was happening. This was in September. 
There's nothing in that document to suggest there was classified information passed because uh, Kissinger really didn't know anything about what was going on in Paris that wasn't in the New York Times. So the, the key point here is what was said. And what was said was an analysis of the situation. If you read the document closely, uh, Johnson's trying to do something. He may do something. You should watch out. There may be an October surprise. Well, come on, everybody knew that. That wasn't really worth terribly much. And the rest of the, docu- the document's actually about the Soviets, the Middle East, and the implications for the election of changes in foreign policy at the last minute. So I show that, yeah, there was some conversation between Kissinger and the Nixon campaign. There was also a conversation between Kissinger and the Humphrey campaign. And it's important to know, and this is the final point I'll make, that in previous elections, uh, under Rockefeller's uh, direction, Kissinger had offered his expert advice on foreign policy to candidates on both sides. Uh, I wanted to probe a little deeper into this because it is the one thing that you actually spend a good bit of reasonable amount of space on in the book uh, with this refutation. So it seems like it's worth digging into. And also, about a year ago, we had sitting in the same chair, one of the scholars who's written about this and, and made the charges that, uh, that, that you refute in the book, and that's Ken Hughes, uh, uh, historian, who's written specifically about this particular incident. And he does point to some, you know, there, there's an FBI document that's, you know, FBI from a wiretap that talks about that this woman, Anna Chenault, was in communication. And, I, and you acknowledge that, too, that she existed. Can I interrupt? Sure, of course. this has got nothing to do with Henry Kissinger uh, at all. I mean, I've seen those FBI documents. Right, right. You'll look in vain for any reference to Kissinger's name. And, I mean, I, I, I think there's an interesting story here of how Nixon was uh, waging the campaign with the kind of uh, tricks that we associate with Nixon, but also, I mean, not only with Nixon, uh, but, but there was all sorts of skull going on in that election. Uh, and I think the key point here is, um, you know, did the South Vietnamese really need Richard Nixon to have been in- informed by anybody that there was a, an October surprise coming that they would then need to sabotage? And uh, anybody who's been properly trained as a historian knows that, that uh, on that test, this case collapses because it was absolutely clear to anybody who read the papers uh, that there was an October surprise in the pipeline, uh, and that, secondly, a Nixon uh, administration would be tougher than the Humphrey administration. Th- that was because they'd both made their positions absolutely clear, and therefore the South Vietnamese, who had pretty good intelligence sources of their own, they didn't need any of this to know uh, that, that this was in the pipeline and that they should hang tough. So I have to say, um, in the annals of historical scholarship and the foreign policy of the 1960s, this is one of the biggest red herrings I've come across. 